welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Andrew McDonald, Associate Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Institute, and we're excited to have with us today Dr. Gerardo Marty. Gerardo is a professor of sociology at Davidson College and president-elect of the Association of the Sociology of Religion. He is the author of several books, including The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and The Strain of Megachurch Ministry, with Mark Mulder, as well as Latino Protestants in America. But before we begin from Gerardo, let's go to our host, editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, Ed Stetzer. Well, again, thank you, and thanks, Andrew, filling in for us today for Daniel Yang. And we're super excited. We're actually here on the campus of Biola University. We're here for the Ablaze Conference for the, what's the full name of the Center for Holy Spirit? It's the, the Center, Center for the Ministry Spirit and Work of the Holy Spirit today. today. And on our friend, Dr. Oscar Merlot. And so we're here for this conference. And so it gives us the opportunity to catch up with some guests. And uh, Dr. Martin and I have actually met in person before. And we uh, had the privilege together of, I think we were both speaking there, were we not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. But um, you're a sociologist. Your background is uh, your former pastor, been involved in ministry um, and then pursued an academic route and now have written some really fascinating books. And it's a little difficult have a conversation with you because we can talk about Latino Protestants hmm. or we can jump and talk about Robert Schuler, hmm. and we'll probably do both. Hmm. And so thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Okay, so we were at the same meeting. What was the meeting and what were you speaking on? Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. It's we call it SSSR, yeah. and it's uh, one of the best meetings out there. Yes, oh, it's, 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 I can assure you, I was the cool person there, which is not a hard, uh, not a hard thing. But it was, uh, no, it's fascinating. I can't remember what I was talking about. I think I was talking about evangelical trends. Um, uh, we had done a, um, Ryan Burge and I had done that mm. note in the Journal of Religion and Politics, where we kind of found the error in the code mm. for the um, RELTRAD. Sorry, I'm losing everybody. Everyone's That's like, right. where are you? Exactly. Where are talking what? About? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, so um, so many people right now are listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It is a um, It was number four on iTunes in the whole world, not the Christian podcast, but in the whole world. Um, I can't go anywhere without somebody starting a conversation with me. Hey, heard you on this. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I didn't, I wasn't on that podcast. Um, <laughs> but you, you have, and in that podcast, mm-hmm. um, it actually traces some of the Mars Hill phenomenon, I think is what he said, what Mike Cosper is though said to Robert Schuller. Mm-hmm. And you have written a fascinating book um, on Robert Schuller. And a lot of people, just to be blunt, a lot of people don't know. Um, I mean, it's a generational thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I attended once Crystal Cathedral, mm. and I've been on the Hour of Power two or three times, mm. but not when Schuler, not when Robert Schuler was there. Bobby Schuler's there now. Who's right. who's uh, you know he's a graduate of Oral Roberts University. Mm. He's a he's a he's more charismatic than he. I mean, it's just fascinating. Very different than. Uh, than, you know, cultural background than his uh, than his grandfather. But you've written, it's called The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuller, The Christian Cathedral, and The Strain of Megachurch Ministry. Now, to our listeners, before you, you know, disconnect, uh, we're going to have a conversation today about some of the history that comes and, some, and kind of unpack some of the uh, Crystal Cathedral story. But we're going to apply this. We're going to have conversations about some of the challenges hmm. that, such ministries create. And if your church is 300, you can also feel some mm-hmm. of those challenges um, as well. Okay. So um, people don't, a lot of people 
who would look to Robert Schuler. So I'm here with Andrew McDonald, and we're actually working on a project of finished most of the research, but got to write a book on the rise of entrepreneurial evangelicalism, mm-hmm. kind of post the Jesus People movement, which we're mm-hmm. talking about here. Mm-hmm. And Schuler's the fountainhead in so many ways mm-hmm. of Absolutely. this conversation. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people sort of have conveniently forgot that because of how it ended. So tell us a little of the Schuler story. Well, Robert H. Schuler was one of the most prominent leaders who not only built his own church, but provided a paradigm for how to have a successful church. And what Robert A. Schuler seemed to have solved was how to have a stable and strong church that you would be able to count on being there for generations. And the surprising aspect of this ministry that influenced thousands of other church leaders is how quickly it imploded. So there's a forgotten story of the way in which he engaged his own ministry, the way in which he was a very proud graduate of Hope College and Hope Seminary, believed that he was an absolutely faithful uh, Calvinist, understood John Calvin better than anyone else. Which is fascinating. Calvinist (laughs) everywhere. That's right. And then built a successful church in Illinois and then went ahead and packed up his wife, two kids, and a portable organ to go to Southern California and to start a new church. But by the time he got here, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Baptists and everyone else were already here. He could not find a place. And that's when he decided to go ahead and go to the local drive-in theater and preach from the top of the snack bar. Out of that, in addition to already engaging advertising, marketing techniques, aggressive fundraising, and tricks like inviting a guest choir of 40 people, but telling them, please come in individual cars so that it looked like there were more people in attendance than there actually were on that Sunday. And by being able to do things like that, he was able to successfully move into creating a real church, if you will, one that looked like an official church. It outgrew, he outgrew it very quickly. So then he created a hybrid church that was both indoor and outdoor. It had an indoor congregation, (laughs) but you could also park your car outside. And by pressing a button, you could open the glass doors and he could preach to both at the same time. That hybrid structure eventually moved into the Crystal Cathedral that became famous as an architectural wonder Mm. and trying to appeal to something that was both modern, but also solidly doctrinal. You meant, you gave us a great example there of innovation that he was doing, but you also mentioned the word marketing. What what did he do? What did Schuler's what did Schuler do in ultimately creating a marketing as an evangelical? We don't think of that word as like a very positive word in terms of churches, but Schuler really kind of uses marketing as a huge way to push his church forward. That's right. A lot of things that Schuler did, he advocated in ways that were absolutely unapologetic. So he believed that churches should dedicate a part of their budget to PR and marketing. To be fair, unheard of at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And he also hired a personal PR person mm-hmm. for himself. Mm-hmm. And then he was more than willing to use newspaper, any radio ads. And eventually when Billy Graham came and did his crusade locally, he talked to his people about how they did their camera work. How did they do all this television stuff? That's how he dovetailed into going ahead and creating his own hour of power, which became global. And the Billy Graham connection with the name? 
with the name also, but the idea there was really so about the technique. The hour of the hour of power hour. comes from that Billy Graham suggestion. Oh, the hour of decision. Right, 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 That's right. right. Yeah. And so from there, it was just this sense of how he was willing to do things that most people weren't yeah. because it sounded very businessy. And yet he loved that. He thought that you should manage your church like a firm. And he had no problem calling himself the president, not the mm. pastor of the Crystal Cathedral. Which is fascinating that all of that language almost sounds mainstream by the time we get to the 80s and the 90s. And there's a backlash to it in the emerging church and and some even remaining concerned today. Uh, but let's let's walk theologically just for a bit. So he comes out of the Dutch Reformed tradition, mm-hmm. um, which again, for we think a lot of people think of Calvinists today, they other people come to mind, not the Dutch Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. So the Dutch mm-hmm. Reformed tradition is not the John Piper or the Tim Keller or that kind of tradition. It can be very pragmatic in That's its right. express. And you know, Bill Hybels comes out of that context as well. Who do you see as you look today? Because you do project forward. Who's influenced by? by Crystal Cathedral and by Robert Schuller. Well, absolutely. He considered as students, as his own students, uh, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Young E. Cho, mm-hmm. and then we see Joel Osteen. Yeah, a little context for Young E. Cho was the pastor of Yoido Island Church in Korea. He just recently died, but very well known. One of the, the one to point the largest church in the world. Absolutely. So they all, he, Schuller claimed him. Claimed, which is interesting because mm-hmm. sometimes the, the claim didn't go both directions for some of the That's people right. that you <laughs> mentioned. So. Um, a lot of people will drive by the Christ Cathedral uh, where it is today, and they're not aware of the spectacular uh, collapse of that. And again, mm-hmm. just Bobby Schuler's my friend. Um, they're still doing the Hour of Power. I think they're at Irvine Presbyterian now, my recollection is. That's where we were. But that building, people still drive by and not aware that that's not the Christ Cathedral anymore. Well, in 1980, it was an astounding thing to have this thing built. Uh, of course, they had hoped that it would cost only a certain number of million dollars. Mm-hmm. But between inflation and what was happening in the 70s, Robert H. Schuler caught himself in a moment in which credit was expanding, but at the same time, interest rates were going up higher and higher. So the construction costs kept getting higher and higher. And so there was a radical moment in which he thought, this is it. It's all going to stop. Nothing's going to happen. My ministry has now uh, ceased. And it was the first million-dollar donor who said to him, dig a hole, Schuler. You've got a million dollars from me. That should be enough to dig a hole dig a hole, Schuler, And out of digging that hole and seeing the progress, that's how the additional capital started to come in. But Robert Schuler was unapologetic about raising money, both in terms of borrowing from people who were not members of his church, being willing to approach people like the founders of Amway, using those Dutch Reform connections, connections yeah, yeah, yeah. and to be able to uh, sell shares of uh, investments, you know, uh, in his own church, so that people would get an actual percentage back from investing in the church itself, in the building of the church itself. And it's those kinds of things which he called the philosophy of capital. Right. He had a philosophy of capital, in which he was willing to say, "We, sh- you should borrow as much as you can, because you want to create space in your church for the people who are not yet there." And then when they, when they come, then they will complete the commitments that you have made on their behalf. Yeah. It's just that crazy. that building vision yeah, but that, but that's, so, went crazy. So that's, by the time we get to the 60s and the 70s, independent fundamental Baptists are using language like that. This is, not all of them come from Schuler, but there, there was an entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. that was there. But part of your, your book is, deals with some of the cautions that are there. Um, as well. And I want to get to those in just a minute. But so 
So, but kind of tell us, Crystal Cathedral now is what? Crystal Cathedral was purchased. It went bankrupt, so it, it was purchased by the Archdiocese of Orange, and it is now a the bishop the bishop seat for the Catholic Church, which is a cathedral. So it's, it's still a cathedral, That's but correct. not the the organization that is the church. Then moved, and there was a daughter, then the son, and then the grandson. So That's correct. Collects, but but that you don't. No, sorry, go on that. We want to learn lessons from that's Robert Schuller. That's right. That's right. So where is the strain then? So so how do we get from this this rise, this meteoric rise, this meteoric fall to the point that it's not even in it's not even a church anymore, uh, or it's not even Robert Schuller's church, the Crystal Cathedral? Where is the strain and the collapse in the story? Well, in telling the story, Mark Mulder and I worked together, and we said, well, look, every church requires at least three things. You need constituents. You have to have people who are a part of the church willing to join um, and willing to be uh, faithful members. But you also need to have charisma. You have to be able to attract loyalty, to be able to have people give and volunteer. And then you have to have capital. And it's the flow of capital that most people do not consider when they think about what it means to manage your church. And Robert H. Schuller unapologetically, again, said, we need to pay attention to flows of capital. And all of these three things have to be kept in alignment in any ministry. You've got to have constituents charisma and capital. But if any of those go out of whack, then that out of whack can uh, create a spiral. You see, that's really what happened, I think, over time with Robert Schuller is that constituency grew, his charisma had to grow. Charisma was expanded not only locally through his pulpit, but also through the television in that broadcast, Hour of Power broadcast. With that, the capital had to grow. But the capital revenue from Hour of Power greatly outpaced whatever he was able to gather from the immediate congregation. So then Robert Schuller prepared a succession plan that included him living till he was 100 years old. Wow. Well, you've so, got to appreciate the boldness. Yeah. So from that standpoint, I think that he never really believed that anybody else could carry the ministry yeah. in the same way because they wouldn't be able to attract the funding in the same way that he had for many years. So he believed that the constituents were faithful to him, not necessarily the church, that the charisma was unique to him and could not be easily shared with wow. anybody else. And therefore that the capital was also tied to his person. And being able to try to watch for that, anytime he had gotten in trouble, he was able to get huge infusions of cash, right? right through people who were quite wealthy, which were part of a broader movement of conservative Christian business people right. who had affirmed capitalism as a Christian thing. You could be a Christian and a capitalist, which uh, Robert Schuller boldly said for many years that he was a capitalist and a Christian. Sure. And out of that, they were willing to fund things that they supported. Ministries that resonated with their idea that they could be executives, that they could be wealthy, and that it would be okay in the Christian realm. Once credit changed, once monies did not flow as easily, and we moved into the 2000s, right. post 9-11, you have the bankruptcies and the crises, financial crises that happened in 2008, 2009. Those are all things that affected mm -hmm. Robert Schuller's ministry. So then when Robert H. Schuller said, you know, we just need one more project, and he created yet another project, built another building, made another architectural marvel, the price tag was just too high. So he was not able to get the infusions. He was not able to meet the creditors. He wasn't able to do it um, on a dime. The charisma has fizzled. The constituencies began to flounder. Uh, the people that he had been reaching, which were really 
ex-members of other churches from the South or the Midwest, wherever they had moved to, that flow of migration had largely stopped. So we no longer have these people who understand church and were already Christian, but we're looking for a new church. We now have a changing demographic of Southern California that may not necessarily be as committed to Christianity at all, let alone a church. So between all of those things altogether and the faltering of his own health, um, then the, the church ended up wobbling and wobbling out of control so that the capital expenditures could no longer be met. The charisma challenges of the successors that he tried between the son and the daughter and moving on, that didn't take, and the constituency went down. It just couldn't recover. It was interesting because I I got a call from the executive pastor there. I had written a book called Comeback Churches, book on church evaluation, and they were actually going through it as a leadership team. And it kept seeing, and we we didn't talk a lot, but because they soon had a leadership transition and... um, I'm trying to remember who that was transition. It wasn't between Robert. I'm not sure who it was between. But there was a sense that the the church continued to struggle while the television still had. I mean, when I when I'm on the when I'm on the hour power, I mean, I get I watch the like they they broadcast first in the US and then around the world, and you can watch the comments. I mean, millions of people still watch that program today. So the church still exists. It's doing Bobby, Bobby's doing good work. But that influence and has gone in some ways with the influence to church. I mean, they have still their influence their own audience. So here's, I guess, the question, because here we are today where a lot of this resonates. I started talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, internet age, television age, right? So the, we, and, and there is a, you know, a connection between the two. Of course, Mark spoke at the Crystal Cathedral uh, there, famously wearing sneakers and more. Uh, I guess the... The question that, uh, and I would, I would tell you, and Bobby Schuler, if you're listening, the, I bought a suit when he first asked me to come. I said, I need you to wear a suit. I said, I don't have a suit. I bought a suit for Bobby Schuler. Um, but what, what can we, like pastors and church leaders or audience, what lessons can we take away? What are the central lessons? Because, and again, I, I rec- you, you talked about um, the idea specifically of those, those three things. You talked some about uh, the capital. You were kind of explaining how the capital went away. But that still has implications for all of us who are pastors mm-hmm. and church leaders. Talk to mm-hmm. us about some of those implications. Well, I have great respect for the work of pastors today. Uh, I think that pastors, of course, have constant strains. Not only do they have to somehow look to the future at the sustainability of their ministries, but they're constantly on demand 24-7 for the pastoral needs of their congregation. So there is always something to be done, and it is a challenge. I think part of Schuler's appeal was that he seemed to have solved the problem that every pastor uh, asks, how am I going to make sure and keep these doors open so that we can minister not only the people here, but the people we want to see later? So what do we need to keep in mind? I think part of it is that Schuler shifted our understanding of the management of church. He didn't just say, look, we just need to trust Jesus and pray together. He really believed that you needed to have a strategic plan and to think further out. What I think he got caught in was that he believed that people gave only when things look good. And so he created visions of things that were not yet accomplished, things that were in the future, in order to appeal to people to a purity of something that really had not existed yet. And that's different from, you know, the lights and the other things that are required right now. And if you just continue to only look at that, you're, you're caught in a cycle of having to make that vision bigger and bigger, more and more ambitious, but also harder and harder to achieve. And you are straining the people under you 
to make that happen. Mm-hmm. You're asking for more volunteer hours. You're asking them to double their tithing. You're asking for more and more in which you're straining the people that you most want to minister to on the scope of, you know, a bigger vision, a bigger mission, something that is historic. So Schuler really believed that he was building the modern pyramids and that that would be the glory of what God would, would be able to be evidence of, you know, for the modern world in the future. And I think that what he may have lost sight on is what's happening with people right in front of him. The other thing that he had difficulty with is that he himself confessed that he did not really know how to minister to people who did not have a Christian background. He really leveraged people who already were tithing Christians who served their churches and believed that their family should go to church. And so once he said, we are now in an atmosphere where people have no Christian background, that really shifts how we come to understand what he meant when he used the word unchurched. He didn't mean somebody who did not know about church. He meant just people who didn't have a current church membership. And so we now have to be in a different place of what is our ministry? Who is it that we're trying to reach? And in doing so, yes, we have to solve the issue of there are people who need to come. Yes, we need to have enough vision and loyalty and commitment to see people come and be loyal to us. And yes, we have to think ahead about how we're going to meet those needs. But in doing so, we have to keep all of them in a balance. That alignment is very difficult to keep. I'm intrigued, though, because you've talked a lot about like this idea of strain and a lot, a lot of the words that you're using around like vision and growth and are like dead center to the, a lot of the ways that churches understand their own identity today. The words that we use, not just mega churches, but just every average church out there will use the word vision. And the idea of growth is such an idea that we're, we're all aspiring to grow and to be to improve, to bring more people into either by salvation or people who move. And my question is, is there paradigms for us as we're looking at the story of Robert Schuller? where we can understand some of the strain of this constantly seeking growth? Is it crushing leaders beyond just Robert Schuller? How much do you see this penetrating into churches? And, and how can churches, if you're a pastor of a church of 200 people, what lessons can they learn as they kind of reading through the lens of Robert Schuller's life? Yeah, this is a great point, because I think that all of us really want to treasure uh, growth, and so many people are being pushed towards growth. You're making an excellent point. What we need to do is we need to remind people of what the church can be for the people who are right there with you right now. And we also need to be willing to do things that are uncomfortable and may actually not keep people because there are people who will come on certain kinds of messages, but it might be much more uncomfortable to deal with some of the real issues that we face today. When we think, for example, of issues of racial justice, there are many people who are allergic to this kind of conversation. And yet the church may be one of the core institutions in our society that can help people to deal with issues of prejudice and discrimination and the impact that they can have in their churches, in their workplaces, in their schools. But a lot of pastors will not work with that. They will not touch it because they don't believe that it will lead to growth. Right. So and growth, and there, there, is, there are consequences. But if growth yeah. becomes the only yeah. criterion, then it begins to shape the ministry in yeah. particular ways. I think a lot of pastors also feel like they have to put themselves online and they have to find a way to appeal to people who are thousands of miles away. I think that's also a different kind of thing that very much ties into Schuler's desire to expand the scope of his charisma, mm-hmm. but may not necessarily meet the needs of the local church. So what is your ecclesiology, I think, is part of the question that all of us have to re-ask in our ministries. 
Love it. So you're, um, let me just remind everyone, we're, we're listening to, we're talking to Gerardo Marti. He's the uh, professor of sociology at Davidson College. Uh, we were talking primarily about The Glass Church, his co-authored book. It's on Robert Schuller, The Crystal Cathedral, and the Strain of Megachurch Ministry with Mark Mulder. Uh, that came out in 2020. But let me also direct you to other uh, things he's written, The American Blind Spot, which kind of goes to where you're talking to a minute ago, race, class, uh, religion, and the Trump presidency. Um, he's uh, written the one that I, I've read that found fascinating was your book on the emerging church, uh, the, destru- the deconstructed church, understanding emerging Christianity. Actually, the emerging church a little narrows more than it was, but understanding emerging Christianity. That was by Oxford University Press, uh, won the 2015 Distinguished Book Award from the Society for the American Scientific Study of Religion, uh, which was the party we started with talking about at the beginning. I wonder if that was that the year you got the award? I think it was. Oh, I may. Have I think been. it was. Oh, um, well, it was right around. That's that why time. you talked to me. I'd say. That's no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I still be your, I like, I like you. I wouldn't be your friend. Um, and, um, you know, as, so, all right. So what, there's so much, I want to encourage people to take a look. Um, right, and right now you're actually working with a Lilly Endowment Thriving Congregations Initiative, helping congregations confront racial injustice as well. And so a lot of things you're engaged and involved with as well. And, and, and fascinating things. Okay. So right now the conversation um, on a lot of people's mind is in and around you know the question people ask is, is there going to be a there's a rise and fall of mars hill um yours is in a sense you didn't call this the rise and fall of crystal cathedral i mean could there be a rise and fall of 50 60 other things probably i guess the question that i would have is one that my that donna posed to me my wife um because we we've been friends with some of people who've kind of either by their own actions or or the church itself kind of blew up and she said to me at one point, I think there's something inherent in the megachurch system that's causing some of these ongoing problems. Is this something we see in the church of 200? Uh, the typical, you know, the average church size in the United States is lower than uh, 100, meaning church size lower than 100. Mm-hmm. Is is the megachurch and the large church model just inherently problematic? No one person should have that much influence or and and you don't you know you're our guest you don't have to agree with what i say but what what saith you (laughs) well i think the challenge is that really nobody knows how to pastor a church we all have to learn somewhere Mm -hmm. and because most people have had some experience with mega churches that becomes the model also mega churches have been the most explicit at creating the workshops at creating the networks um i have met many pastors who have no seminary training but they are part of a weekly call among other pastors about how to do the pragmatic work of the ministry. But what they focus on are budgets, t-shirt designs, sermon series. You could go on. You know what I'm talking about. I've been on some of those calls. It isn't really about dealing with theological matters or how do we understand and cut through the cultural clutter. It isn't about how to tell the difference between good information and bad information. It isn't about the way in which many Many good Christian people are being manipulated by people who are eager for their votes and eager for their money. And that's what I think pastors need to do. Pastors need to help people not to get them just mobilized in their immediate churches. It needs to help them to know how to work in the world as strategic people who know how to apply their faith with the complexities that we're facing today. There are too many sermons that say, you know, the world's messy. We just need to get back to Jesus. 
I say, no, the world has always been messy. Mm -hmm. What we need are tools to understand a world that continues to change. And if we have the tools to continue to change with it, then we can be creative about what we do, not just with our church ministry, but with the ministry that each and I, each one of us, right, that you and I take into our workplaces, into our homes, into every sphere that we go into. And so I want to think that I am a part of the ministry of my church whether I am at my church building or not. So are pastors being able to do that? That's what I think is the core question for us to really work with today. So you mentioned tools, and I'm going to speak to you now. I'm going to speak right down the center of the sociologist laneway here for you. So, so you mentioned tools, and one of the, the one of the problems then is how do you evaluate, how do you measure success in ministry? Like we just listened, we've talked a lot about the the Mars Hill podcast, and there's a podcast, there's one episode in there where they talk about how. Uh, conversions are often used, uh, like, look at how much success we have. Look at how many people are coming to Christ. We, we can't be wrong. This thing's going. In the same way that Schuler, like, look at how look, the building's growing. It's beautiful. There has They have to be successful. What are some way, What are some tools that we can put in the hands of pastors for understanding success that don't breed this way of, of kind of like, look at how much we're raising, look at how many conversions we have. What are some ways that we can get out of that cycle and help arm pastors for better? Yeah, it's really tough because so many of us go back to something that we can count. And that's why baptisms become, for example, one of the key measures, metrics that churches use, regardless of religious orientation. So I think that part of it is it's a true countercultural movement for us to say, you know what, maybe it's not just what we count, it's about what we see happening with in front of us. Pastors, first of all, need to be willing to confront things in their own lives. And that's not easily measured, but there are a lot of things that we bring into the ministry that we may not even realize that is affecting our ministry and our relationships with other people and what we seek to reproduce in our congregations. So I think there's part of that. There's also an attempt to really multiply the kind of influence that people have in your congregation. So rather than thinking about the pastor wanting more influence for themselves, it's how do I create a platform in which every person in my church expands their level of influence, not just at the church, but outside of the church, and to be able to celebrate the kinds of things that they're doing out there. It's to be able to reward things, not just because they showed up to take care of babies, but reward when a person takes on an ambition to apply the gospel in a way that nobody had seen before in an industry or an area that would otherwise not be recognized. Can we raise up more models for what ministry is looking like in the days of in everyday people's lives in the world today? That's what I would love to see more on Sunday morning. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Dr. Gerardo Marty, author of The Glass Church, Robert Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and The Strain of the Mega Church. Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com. If you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, that'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app, available for both Apple and Android. Hey, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.